Today is September 16th, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chestokom, Aki, or Dekot, Nagotene, Siku. Hi, my name is Red Thunderwoman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. They and them would absolutely be acceptable. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce it in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot and, Den and Dene elders and language keepers as I learn proper pronunciation. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I am a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Dencho Tene Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many big dog town, named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name that has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene, and that roots me into Treaty 8. So through my father, I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having a Canadian Indian Act imposed status card, which is a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the Indigenous 2S LGBTQ plus community and Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share my journey in this podcast as I do not see enough Indigenous representation on the media, and especially uh, today out of all days, uh, discussing really important issues like affordable housing across Canada. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run and joined harmful uh, colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive uh, party conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow for incarceration, a denial of justice, a denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue, reports to advocate for, and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for this so-called country named Canada. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping this harm, and as a citizen, see your role as a treaty partner and reconciliation. Pride Month should never just be one month. It is important to understand that the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on these lands by Christian outsiders. And now other religions are starting to do the same. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as you are the guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner, especially in a time of so-called reconciliation. It's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage everyone to introduce themselves with the acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, a citizen of Canada, a refugee or other land displacement, so we as Indigenous peoples know how safe you are to be around. If you won't acknowledge your local Indigenous nations' names, your pronouns, your story of origin, won't acknowledge stolen lands, um, knowledge of imposed economic oppression 
or your role in reconciliation, I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me you have no Indigenous 101 understanding when you call yourself a native Calgarian, native Edmontonian. Um, Jesse Winty's book Unreconciled explains this perfectly, as do many other Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism, but it would be a part of treaty partnership, part of meaningful reconciliation, honoring global initiatives like the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. Um, <clears throat> The Blackfeet, south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, north of the border are the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Good Stony, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts, or podcasts and pin posts on social media. So I wanted to talk a lot today about housing. Um, this is a, an issue that has happened since contact. Uh, but prior to contact, we did not have homelessness. But uh, since we have been disproportionately affected by houselessness, I think it's really important to talk about that. Um, this is the national conversation. But um, as somebody who believes in Indigenous representation in media, you know, I'm just not hearing um, the non-Indigenous who supposedly care about reconciliation talk about what the solutions are, even though they've been hand gifted many times, many decades throughout many reports to a lot of uh, settlers and their politicians. So when I'm hearing this conversation, I'm not hearing uh, the solutions the way they should be presented. So I thought because I am here in Calgary and I'm native Calgarian, I would talk about it from a Calgary point of view and move forward from there. Now, I'm not with the city of Calgary in any capacity. Um, I feel like they've done a lot of good movement, but I'm going to remind everybody that there was a 10 year strategy already to eliminate uh, houselessness in Calgary that they not just failed, but like, I think it got three times worse, maybe maybe worse. I, I, I don't care, it's in the past, it, it is what it is. And I know, um, and, and our listeners know that I have talked relentlessly about the opioid crisis murdering our people and the lack of willpower by Canadians to allow it to continue. And that's a part of the ongoing genocide that our people are experiencing. And of course, how this 
conversation of a national strategy on on uh, house housing affordable housing of course that's needed inflation is out the roof i you know, i don't know anyone in my life that isn't financially struggling nobody even non-indigenous people in my life are financially struggling right now and um you know it's really easy to want to blame it in one direction but it's everybody and i i'm hoping that by the end of this podcast people will see um a little bit of that here and and maybe learn something if you did learn something i'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com and uh if you'd love to send me a donation that'd be even better but since there's no conversation happening right now by um any of the mainstream media and none of the politicians, maybe, maybe Aaron uh, Paquette, but I'm not following every single thing he's doing right now. Um, you know, I'm just not hearing it from uh, mainstream parties and the politicians. And I found it really interesting because there's actually been a lot of work done in Calgary in the form of words and reports. So I thought I'd show you those words and those reports and uh, go from there. So I'm going to share screen. So for my folks who um, listen to my podcast on streaming services, you can actually go to my YouTube and find this. And for folks that um, are on my YouTube, you can see some of these reports. And I'm going to try to give lists of it as well when we're when we're talking about this so that people can see what I see. So um, right there's my script that you all get to see. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that I can kind of hit on some of these points. So Indigenous didn't have uh, homelessness before contact. Since then, our folks have been disproportionately houseless. Urban Indigenous folks like myself are forcibly uh, displaced by design of the Indian Act, colonialism and mining, etc. And there's tons of evidence to it, especially for me and my folks. Once upon a time, I naively thought I could be a part of the solution at the federal, provincial, and municipal level. I naively thought voters would want that. Um, it's a huge topic to explain from Indigenous lens. And again, I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous folks. That said, I do have a geomatics background and my lived experience, which I'll focus on today. And I know 99% of politicians, urban planners, and public service servants don't have what I do. So I'm just going to go from there. Um, so I wanted to start, first point out what it is that I'm talking about here. So Calgary, the city of Calgary released Home is Here, the city of Calgary's housing strategy. And it's a beautiful report. It's about 38 pages long. And um, of course, they start off with a land acknowledgement, and I wanted to really focus on outcome five, which is addressing the affordable housing needs of Indigenous people living in Calgary. Um, just before I do, though, I just wanted to kind of show folks um, the land acknowledgement that's officially by the City of Calgary. It always includes uh, the historic Northwest Métis and the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. They have hired Métis on their staff, so um, that is why it's included. I think that anyone who uh, has really looked at treaty knows that uh, Métis were not part of the treaty uh, signing process. Now, they were historically excluded as well. They were there. Uh, but for folks who know in Blackfoot territory, Métis and Cree were run out of Blackfoot territory every single time until forced colonialism and policing and um, if you learn more about Treaty 7, you would know that the, the Crown had 
uh, guns, cannons on the on the ridge pointing at everybody and that almost all the nations were very reluctant to sign and they certainly didn't want the Métis in their circle. So, um, you know, I again, until the Métis do that uh, work with the treaty nations and get that kind of a, a approval, um, this historic Métis nation and uh, Métis nation region three is just another imposed form of colonialism. They need to work with the treaty nations on this. Um, so I, I never use that in mind for that reason. And for folks who've taken my land acknowledgement teachings, they know that. Again, I have a background in geomatics and I also have historical, well, I, I guess just been reading the research on that information about Treaty 7, et cetera, and, and the Blackfoot. So folks who haven't read about the Blackfoot, of course, they don't know any of that. Um, anyway, really nice report here uh, that talks about, you know, these different pillars and nice rainbow colors of all the pretty things they need to do. Um, so when it comes to addressing Indigenous people, they say fulfill commitments of reconciliation action uh, by impl implementing the actions within the way forward, affordable housing for Indigenous Calgarians through a holistic plan. So that's all it references throughout this entire thing. So for non-Indigenous people, they have no idea. So I thought I'd show folks what it is that they have. So we are in, um, I, I searched in the city of Calgary's website and they have uh, the Indigenous Affordable Housing Funding Program. And if you look, they are accepting applications. So I had a look at this application process and I, I can't wait to share it with you. So here we have this a city of Calgary housing solutions, like for the record, we don't have housing. Like, so for someone like myself, um, what, nobody knows about this, like <laughs> nobody. So anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd show it to you. Um, really good wording though. Um, there were some key points I really wanted to bring out to you. Uh, the adequate provision of affordable housing has not been equally afforded to indigenous people. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a hundred percent true. Uh, Indigenous people are facing housing challenges that are not acceptable. That's correct. On any given night, Indigenous people encounter homelessness and insecure housing at a far greater rate than non-Indigenous people living in Calgary. 100%. This is beautiful. Um, our primary commitment to reconciliation action is prior prioritizing now and into the future a co-creation of housing solutions that address the need for land and infrastructure increases in social programming and amendments to municipal bylaws and policies that continue undue racism and discrimination against Indigenous people living in Calgary. This Indigenous Affordable Housing Funding Program contributes to this commitment and is a program to support for Indigenous by Indigenous affordable housing projects. So uh, for folks who don't know, we do have a group that is trying to create a space. I'm assuming that's like the test run of this whole thing. Uh, but regardless, here they have some really great wording. Um, they did include the affordable housing strategy, the social well-being policy, the White Goose Fighting Report, and the anti-racism strategic plan, which is really important. Um, of course, that doesn't include the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, nor is it rooted in the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, but they do kind of say that later in a different way. I just think it's really important to acknowledge 
it's kind of halfly mentioned here. Um, regardless, this is well worded. I love I love the way they actually talk about that. Um, and their their main pillars: reconciliation, natural laws, recognizing the land, and safe spaces. Really important conversations to have. Colonialism and external racism and supports. So I think these are really important, like centering goals that they had here. And, um, but, you know, here, here's the thing, and <laughs> the eligib eligibility is very difficult for a lot of folks to be able to uh, meet that threshold. And a lot of this is actually for uh, infrastructure projects. So like, uh, you know, one of these companies that would do this type of work, um, having them focus on this now, as far as I'm concerned, business reconciliation is like just not happening here in Calgary. So if it's not for the city kind of giving these parameters, we'll never get there because business is so racist in this city. Um, anyway, I, oops, I uh, kind of forward something here that I didn't want to forward. Um, so the, the goals here, the, the city's aiming to reduce the number of Indigenous households in housing, uh, increase the overall supply of affordable housing for Indigenous people, increase the number of Indigenous housing units that are culturally appropriate, increase the supply of affordable housing units operated by Indigenous partners, and increase the capacity of Indigenous governments and or not for profit organizations to provide affordable housing. Now, I think if you all follow what I've been doing, um, you know that there are really problematic issues with so-called nonprofit organizations. The majority of them do not have any Indigenous leadership. And when they do, it's very poor Indigenous leadership in the sense that um, they may have one Indigenous person and they may not have a voice as I've seen on other boards that the moment if you're you're expected to be a quiet stoic native that nods along and if you're not boom you lose your job boom you lose your position boom you experience that colonial trauma from the other board members I've just seen it over and over and over and so I struggle with this not-for-profit organizations because there is no mechanism under the Society Act to really um, keep non-Indigenous people accountable to Indigenous people, none. And most Canadians don't see themselves as treaty partners, although that's why they're here. <laughs> so treaties are obviously not mentioned here, but this is beautifully um, worded regardless. So not to uh, uh, stay too much longer on here, but like here's their target uh, populations is that, you know, they earn 65% of the Calgary area medium income and spend more than 30% of their gross income on shelter costs. Like I'll give an example of a family. I know that they are using all of their money they can to stay in a hotel because they absolutely cannot get on, on top of this hump of affordable housing and the wait list is ridiculous here in Calgary. So when I read this, I'm like, this is nice on paper. Uh, households who are um, on or eligible be on social housing wait lists. Yep, there's tons of them. The list is ridiculous. Um, households living in inadequate shared or overcrowding accommodation. Well, I don't know a native who isn't um, living in housing detrimental to their health and safety. Uh, for a lot of folks, you don't understand most natives put up with really poor 
living conditions because the moment they complain, just like being that stoic native on a board, boom, you're out. Renter, boom, you're out, 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 out. Like we are always houseless because we have the audacity to say there's mold here, there's cockroaches here, whatever the issue is. And there's so much infestation. So then people, you know, like, well, will contract diseases from these things. And everybody's like, you guys are dirty natives. And it's like, or because of systemic oppression and the lack of housing that's available for us and that racism we regularly receive. I, I know a, a, a friend of mine, one of her grandkids was part of this E. coli uh, fiasco. And because of systemic racism in the healthcare system, that kid did not receive the same type of care as the other non-Indigenous uh, children that did uh, go through this entire system. And I'm hoping in time she'll feel comfortable talking about it. But until then, it will probably be something that she'll know if she talks about it out loud, boom, then she's going to get in shit. And I, I don't blame her for not wanting to talk about it. Just like many folks I know right now on the issue of the board that I'm trying to fight are, you know, neutral, which means that they're on the side of the oppressor. And that's just but the default. That's the way it works in Canada when it comes to this crap. Um, indigenous household with special needs, such as seniors. I know someone who's not even a senior and, and needs, you know, walkers a place to store their motorized scooter it goes without a, a table because of it. Like, I wish Canadians understood the ridiculous situations that we are under and that we're forced to live within. Even when we had this beautiful rental that we had in Lethbridge, I was afraid to smudge in it because I seen the way I like his um, brother was like always watching us and and always having a conversation which is great except that I just knew that if I smudged and anybody smelt it there was a high chance um, it, I would be accused of all the wrong things that's we're just over policed in that way and I don't think folks understand that so anyway um, I, I'm hoping that gives some context uh, to what it is that we're we're talking about and uh, yeah, and I encourage people to just have a look through this um, this housing solutions, indigenous affordable housing uh, funding program because you can see the gaps already. And even though it's strongly worded and 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 such, it, it is just words. And because I'm not hearing my counselor or the mayor or you know other folks talking about this, even these so-called you know nonprofits that are have our interest at heart yeah they never do I don't know what people think they do anyway anyway so I, I just wanted to uh, show those two folks um, so every podcast I talk about September 22nd being Treaty 7's anniversary sure enough uh, for folks who are are on the city of Calgary's uh, website here about uh, housing funding for Indigenous people they, they did some outreach and um, they did some information se sessions and then they did this report. So you can see the work that they've been doing in August. And um, so assessing need, data and alignment, what we heard report. So that's really interesting. That literally came out, not this Friday, but the Friday beforehand. And we never heard a single mayor or counselor say a peep about this or nonprofit for that matter. So 
Um, this, what we heard report, I did, uh, I have right here for folks to look at. It's written by uh, Métis. Her name is Sharon Goulet. It's uh, listed here. So this is the report that you want to see. Uh, what we heard, community engagement and research report, it's dated May 2022. So it's year, year and a half, folks. Understanding the affordable housing needs of Indigenous Calgarians by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. So lovely, lovely um, report. Highly recommend everybody read through it. Um, I think it has more than 63 pages, but uh, either or, it's a beautiful report. Um, there's some things I wish it was stronger on and because it was written by Métis, there's Métis Incorporation through all of this. So I highly recommend people read through that. And anyway, they are also going to be having um, a conversation about this report on Treaty 7 day on September 22nd. So all you have to do is register. You can watch online or you can go in person. So I, I already got my ticket. Um, I, I wish people understood the barriers to sometimes going to these events. I don't know too many people who work that can be at City Hall at 9 a.m. on a Friday and be there until 1230. That's how long this is going to be. Um, for me, I know I can't sit still. I can't get there in time. I have to say no to other things in order to be there and make arrangements to be able to be there. Um, you know, I got to get my girl to school, I got to get the dog walked, and I got to travel down to the city hall by 9am. I wish folks understood how difficult that is. But you know, obviously, if you don't have kids, if you don't have dogs, and I don't know too many natives who are in that world at all, let alone um, able to make some um, place at nine. So anyway, at least I can watch online and uh, be able to put my feet up. Because uh, that's another thing is that like, I'm dealing with, um, what do they call, call it, uh, plantive, I, anyway, my feet hurt all the time now, and I have to set them up if I have an opportunity to, so, um, and most places, colonial places, don't allow for things like that, so they're not accessible <laughs> at all, and I don't, I, I still consider myself able-bodied in so many ways, anyway, I'm getting off track here, um, so I wanted to read to you parts of this report because I, I think that it's really important that people understand I'm really big on are they incorporating the 231 calls to justice? Are they talking about the 113 pathways uh, to justice report from the Alberta government? And I had a look in page 40, the city recognizes the foundations for home, Calgary's corporate affordable housing strategy and implement, implementation plan from 2016 to 2025, the Aboriginal uh, Urban Affairs Committee strategic plan from 2014 to 2023, which ends now, um, the city's commitment to anti-racism 2020, you all know I'm quite bitter about the Indigenous erasure that had happened up to 2020. Uh, municipal Indigenous policies and way forward from 19, uh, 2019, the diversity and inclusion strategy of 2019. You know, like, how is it they had these two? And we're like, oh my God, I'm so surprised about all the racism in this city. 
way in 2020. Had they read those reports, they should not, but they didn't. We know that. Wellbeing Policy 2019, Gender Equity 2019, Waikou's Flying Report 2017, Indigenous Policy 2017, Welcoming Communities Policy 2011, and the Municipal Development Plan of 2009. So they recognize all those. Notice how the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People is missing. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission is missing. Now, technically, the White Goose Fine Report is that, but they didn't include it, so it's, they're not acknowledging it. Um, the National uh, Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, not included. And the 113 Pathways to Justice, not included. So they recognize some things, just not everything. Uh, anyway, page 53. Provincial governments have played a significant role in the Indigenous affordable housing landscape in 1978, so the year after I was born, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation launched the Urban Native Housing Program, which operation, operated provincially. This program provided support through subsidies to urban dwelling Indigenous people who could not otherwise afford market rent in cities. As a result, from uh, 1978 to 1995, the number of Indigenous-led uh, housing corporations increased from five to over 100, increased in are creating just over uh, 10,000 homes nationally. So my own mother, who at that time would have had uh, two kids, um, wouldn't have, like she had no concept of any of this was not a part of this in any way. Um, in 1996, so this would be um, two years after I graduated high school, the federal government under Jean Chrétien moved away from its dominant role in affordable housing, discontinuing new funding for affordable housing and transferred the responsibility to the provinces and territories. Three years earlier, the federal government also discontinued the Urban Native Housing Program, transferring the oversight of pre-existing operation operating agreements to provinces within provincial ministries, short-term, sector-by-sector initiatives arose to fill gaps left by the federal government. This specifically impacted Indigenous people living in cities. It was falsely believed that they were under the jurisdiction of the federal government, when in fact they never were. See, so... I don't love the way that's written, and I'll tell you why, because at the end of the day, this is actually saying, because provincially and municipally, they would regularly racistly discriminate against Indigenous people and say, well, you're federal jurisdiction. And they also are not acknowledging the fact that a lot of us who identify as Indigenous, who are darker colored skin, um, you know, we, we automatically are known as Native and are discriminated against, even though we may be non-status. That, that's pretty normal. Anyway, I want to continue. These jurisdictional falsehoods continue to impact the urban housing need of most, if not all, people living off reserve. Non-status and C31 individuals most have never benefited from the federal distinction-based funding, i.e. me. Federal governments and the federal landscape is more complex with jurisdictional mandates for governments working to support their members both living on and off reserve or in rural communities. This is the case for First Nation and Métis Nation governments, specifically 
under the treaties, the federal government is obliged to fund housing for individual members to live off of reserve. The federal role in First Nation policy is set out in the on-reserve housing policy, which was released in 1996. This 1996 policy still provides the framework for on-reserve housing programming today. And I can tell you, my friends who live on the reserve do not have housing that's adequate, that's clean, that's safe. I can tell you that. Um, all programming is administered by Indigenous Service Canada, another organization that has zero accountability, and the CMHC. Programs are almost always delivered by each First Nation under um, devolved authority. And I really dislike the way that was framed because the Indian Act is not true governance. It's a dictatorship. The false elections we now have to make a so-called chief and council are still just people that are Indian agents. It's like instead of having one Indian agent, we have, you know, eight and they have to only do what you can do under the Indian Act. There's no you know, mechanism for them to do more. So I know we want our leadership to do more, but they are absolutely handcuffed and crippled by the Indian Act. That cannot be said enough. So when it's delivered under uh, each First Nation under devolved authority, I really dislike the way non-Indigenous think that there's so-called governance when it comes to the uh, Indian Act, because there isn't. No Western democracy would approve of the Indian Act in any capacity. So to kind of shift the blame onto us is the problem here. In 2016, the Daniels decision ruled that Métis and non-status Indians are Indians for the purpose of Section 91 of the Constitution Act of 1867. So I will say this is a win for non-status Indians because that's what my daughter is right at this exact moment. She is considered a non-status Indian. So you can see how there's already a conflict between Métis and non-status Natives right? We should be on the same team, but uh, you've all seen the rhetoric coming from Red River Métis that absolutely nobody can identify as Métis. So that's why in my land acknowledgements, which you all hear, I talk about non-status all the time because we know, like, we are discriminated against for being darker, and the lighting right now may not show it on my YouTube, but, you know, I'm darker than most white people <laughs> for sure. So, we get discriminated against that all the time as non-status. Now I'm status and I'm trying to get my daughter's status, but this is relevant when talking about housing because a lot of the folks that I know that are native in some capacity, status or non, are struggling with, with keeping a roof over their head. They are discriminated against in the real world and they never fit any of this criteria. So that's why it's important to really talk about why I thought, mistakenly, that Daniel's decision was going to help a lot of us who are considered non-status. Now, I, my understanding is that the chiefs can say, yes, while this person is non-status, we still recognize this uh, citizen as one of ours. And so, for example, the Yellow Knife Denny could do that for my daughter right now. But anyway, we're still here. Anyway, anyway, let's get back to what we're talking about, which is housing. Um, in 19 or 2019, the uh, Government of Canada 2019 National Housing Strategy Act was released. Clearly informed by a human rights-based approach to housing, 
the national strategy states that housing rights are human rights and that the plan would contribute to the UN Sustainable Development Goals and affirm the International Covenant on, inter on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. While many strategies have sunsetted over the past 20 years, some of the more relevant federal strategies for on and off reserve Indigenous housing and homelessness are briefly described as follows. Urban programming for Indigenous peoples 2017 for 20 years, the UAS marked the federal government's major source of funds for urban Indigenous programming. In 29, or 2017, the Liberal government launched a redesigned budget investing $118.5 over five years in this. Um, this program is still operational in a modified form. The National Homelessness Initiative, 1999, Reaching Home, Canada's Homeless Strategy, the 2018 National Homelessness Initiative was introduced in 1999 with dedicated funding to address homelessness for Indigenous peoples. In 2007, the year my daughter was born, the strategy was rebranded, the Homelessness Partnering Strategy, emphasizing traditional house or transitional housing and supports. In 2016, the government doubled funding to combat Indigenous homelessness. I know a lot of people say, that the Liberal government did nothing. But like this own city report, which I thought was very, like, not disrespectful, but it didn't highlight too many things that were um, pointed out to them. Like, we're in Calgary. This is the home of Stephen Harper and the UCP and their own report, who is always UCP and federal conservative friendly, is saying this here, that the funding was so bad prior that it was easy to double, or I would argue it's still not dollar to dollar funding. So for me, it's not enough. But regardless, everyone who says, well, Justin Trudeau doesn't do enough. Well, there isn't black and white. Um, in 2019, a separate stream of funding was developed to address Indigenous homelessness, which is now part of the National Housing Strategy. In 2020, Government of, of Canada provided an additional $236.7 million to help extend and expand emergency responses to the COVID-19 outbreak. This funding is in addition to the $157.5 million announced in April of 2020 to help communities address the immediate impacts of the pandemic. And I will tell you, um, there was a, a wonderful organization here, nonprofit that is actually Indigenous led. I'm afraid to name it because if I do, then I'm 100% certain all of the racists are going to go and attack it. So I won't. And because my daughter was a part of that program, um, we were receiving funding for food for my daughter. And I am grateful for that. So I can say directly how the um, federal government's pandemic funding helped our family through an organization before it came to us. So very rarely does that happen. And I'm afraid to even name them at this point because of how much racism and discrimination from people will go after these boards in order to take away the small bit of food that we might be getting anyway. <sighs> this new investment will enable communities to extend the emergency measures that have been successful in reducing the risk of the potential outbreaks among people experiencing 
homelessness, as well as provide them with flexibility to cover affordable housing solutions. National Housing Strategy, a place to call home in 2017. In 2017, the CMHC announced a place to call home. A strategy included a long-term vision and funding for social housing with a focus on those with greatest um, housing need. There are Indigenous targets and commitments in most funding streams of the NHS for Indigenous urban housing and distinction-based planning and funding for Métis, Inuit, and First Nation housing, family violence prevention programs, and administered by Indian Services Canada, which is problematic because they are not held accountable. Um, the F FVPP is, so the Family Violence Prevention Program, the um, FVPP is a homelessness prevention program offered on reserve only. So for folks off reserve in the urban setting, this is not to them. Provides funding to First Nations to support the day-to-day -day operations of the 41 emergency shelters across the country. So just to put this in context, there's three, 634 uh, nations. There should be an emergency shelter on all of them, but there's only 41. So um, anyway, as well as for community-driven pro uh, proposals to prevent family violence. Um, so again, we have 231 calls to justice, and that's where it should be going. Uh, shelter enhancement programs on reserve offers additional funds for First Nations to build and repair shelters and housing for people fleeing domestic violence. That's all of us, I feel like. This program offers the capital costs of shelters only. The budget in 2016 marked a recent boost of funding of up to 33.6 million over five years. So take 30 million divided by five. It's not a lot, right? When you're talking about 634 nations, right? So that's what I always do. You know, take 30 divided by five, you got 6 million divided by 635. That's how much money we, we get. And Indigenous Service Canada, they take a portion of that. So we get even less. But non-Indigenous employees that work for um, Indigenous Service Canada, they have pensions, they have holidays, and they get uh, this funding anyway up to 8.3 million for ongoing funding to support shelter operations, 10.4 million over three years to support the renovation and new construction of new shelters and communities income assistance program administered by Indigenous Service Canada provides funds to support the basic needs and uh, transitional services for individuals and families who are ordinarily residents on reserves. So folks like me would not get any of that. Uh, the program provides clients and their dependents where applicable with supports for basic needs for transitioning into the workforce. Uh, clients who demonstrate they live on reserve as uh, defined by the Indian Act are eligible for income assistance as defined by their province of residence and have been confirmed by an assessment conduct by the program delivering agent. That sounds a little aggressive, doesn't it, folks? A little oppressive? No? No. So you don't have that? Oh, how interesting. The federal government includes a shelter allowance to assist with rent and utilities to be distributed, uh, 
uh, dispersed if the First Nation in question charges its members rent and utilities. So like I know a person who regularly is being told she's going to get evicted. And I doubt she has been told about this by her own First Nation. So the First Nations, like they have to be educated on this, like especially chief and council, but they're already overworked with the parameters of the Indian Act. So for them to know this is very unlikely. Anyway, I wanted to just kind of give people an idea of where the money and the jurisdiction goes because everybody says, oh my God, you guys get all this money. And I hope I showed you that all this money is not dollar to dollar funding of what non-Indigenous people receive. So I wanted to start there. I also wanted to encourage folks to consider coming to this um, September 22nd outreach by the city planning for operational sustainability. Join this information uh, session to learn how to demonstrate your project has a positive net operating income throughout its term and how to show its revenue and expenses to the orders of government for operational funding. Uh, we will discuss debt service costs and the breakdown of, of project costs including for affordable housing units, market units, and commercial and office spaces. This session will be hosted by leaders from the city's housing solutions team and the Indigenous Relations Office and will include a question and answer period. So, you know, clearly this isn't just for um, folks that are Indigenous and hoping to find a place to, to live. This is that bigger picture of trying to create these projects. And so I'm going to be very curious about who is coming to this, what they're saying, what their promises are, and, and the term of of length on this because we're in a crisis, we're in a genocide, our people are dying from the opioid crisis as well as uh, financially just struggling. And supposedly there's all this money yet all of our people are houseless. How is that? So anyway, really hope that folks consider uh, going to that. Um, I'll try to give a breakdown from what I had seen. Um, it's gone running through Eventbrite. So I already got my my ticket for that and I hope you consider getting yours. I also hope that for folks who are writing their um, mayors, writing their counselors, writing their MLAs, writing to the relevant people, I hope that you consider going through some of these other housing initiatives and see what's what's happening here. I can't seem to get this to close to save my life. So just gonna stop sharing and go back to just my screen here to talk about this. Um, so a few other things that were referenced in that, um, cancel, leave, here we go, finally. A few other things that were referenced that I thought was really important was the work that is already being done in Sutina. So they have this uh, together at uh, Taza. Now I probably said that wrong. So I'm gonna work on learning uh, proper ways to say that, but they have these project pillars about basically having um, business markets, et cetera. The business plan that they have going forward here for villages for indigenous people to live on in Sutina. And uh, it has uh, 1200 acres stretching 10 kilometers along Sutina Trail that is situated directly adjacent to the city of Calgary's southwest border 
the municipal district of the foothills and Rocky Mountain County. It's totaling $11 billion. This master plan development will be a dynamic place that welcomes and connects tenants, customers, and visitors to Sutina, to the land, and to each other. So here we're talking $11 billion. So Sutina utilizing the business community and working towards um, bigger, a bigger project here. And this project is absolutely laid out well on their website. I highly recommend people looking there. They do have some employment opportunities for nation members, which is brilliant because finally they get to kind of decide how they're going to be working over all of this. And, um, and I applaud them, not just because they're my cousins, but that bigger picture is that they're working in collaboration with um, a lot of non-Indigenous um, businesses to try to create this. So uh, hats off to them. Please go see it. You can find it at together, uh, A-T-T-A-Z-A dot com. And wonderful organization. Uh, they also re reference some Métis housing. Uh, so I could, that's probably a whole episode and I would actually get a um, Métis representative to talk about that because I, um, I seen some of the issues they had up in Edmonton that were not productive and not helping a lot of folks. And I actually like lost a friend over that. And I don't, I know he was traumatized by the entire situation. So my hope is, is that one day he'll tell his story. And anyway, the Métis Housing Corporation is kind of a, a Alberta um, initiative and jurisdiction. So hopefully in time, you know, you can read through their website and, and see the words that they have, the reports that they have. Um, the city, obviously, having that Indigenous affordability housing funding program, I think that's a really important thing for folks to read. And of course, the city of Calgary's housing strategy, number five, is Indigenous people, <laughs> and uh, always referencing back to the ways forward affordable housing for Indigenous Calgarians through a holistic plan. And it's a beautiful report, beautiful. So um, I actually thought when they had the terms of references for the affordable housing program, they were a lot stronger. I, I, I could tell it was written more by an Indigenous or a First Nation rather than a Métis, because it was very clear that um, Indigenous people like are an obligation and are oppressed without using that and that we continue to have undue racism and discrimination. So my hope is that people will read that well throughout that entire program and both reports are fabulous. And I hope that, uh, I hope you all enjoyed it as much. I wanna get deeper into this conversation, maybe over time we will. Um, but I'm just going to wrap up that housing conversation from here. So for folks, maybe this is the first time you've ever listened to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, me talking about this national conversation that's happening right now. Lots of rhetoric coming from the conservatives and the NDP and the liberals on this nationally. And um, my hope is that there will be a teamwork. I, I heard on the CBC they have uh, Lisa Lisa Ratt from the Conservatives. They have Don Iverson, from the ma former mayor for uh, Edmonton, on a on a, on the committee trying to get more buy-in from a conservative provincial government, a federal um, liberal government. Some are run by NDP. Some of the mayors are NDP. You know, so trying to 
put a partisan politics aside to actually be real about the crisis that we're facing right now. I know globally we have one of the best um, economic outlook. Like I think we're rated number two in the world, but anyone who's listening to this, who's Canadian knows the intense pressure we're all under right now uh, when it comes to finances. So it's definitely working if you're part of the financial elite, um, you know, the, the Galen Westons of the world. But uh, for most of us who are just lay people living on, in this world, it, it's pretty nasty. So thank you folks for listening to my thoughts on the houselessness. Um, my previous listeners who have listened before knows that I was trying to find these um, bigots that were at the Trans and Dyke March on the Saturday of the September long weekend. Still no leads, folks. Uh, the police are wondering if we can give them those names, but obviously being in Calgary, being in Alberta, being in Canada, bigots are protected by bigots. So, and I'm feeling like they're disproportionately outnumbering us, that's for sure. Um, so if you go back into my social medias, there are pictures of them. If you're a Calgarian, I wish you would help us out. Um, so on the 18th, there is um, initiative internationally to ask all the non-Indigenous people to stand in solidarity with Indigenous people with Search the Landfill. Uh, the folks at Camp Morgan, Camp Mercedes in Winnipeg are trying to raise awareness about the four warriors that are under there. I know that Tanya Nipponak is there. Um, Joey English is in the Calgary landfills. Now I, I talked to a Calgary police officer who tried to tell me they they searched and they they searched really hard and they couldn't find her. But I just can't help but feel like that while that may be true and they may have had some sweat over that, at the end of the day, she wasn't found. All of her pieces were not found. At the end of the day, it, had she not been Joey English, would she have been found? Would they have done more work in other landfills to try to find her? It doesn't matter now. It, it is what it is. Just like we know where Tanya Nipponak's final resting place is too. So, and, you know, when I was uh, marching with the Liberals for Pride, I had a wonderful friend say, why is this just not like part of a national strategy non-Indigenous or Indigenous to be able to search the landfills. And I, I told them about how my own bins get like, like just meticulously looked through by the city. And if God forbid, I have a piece of plastic that's not in another piece of plastic because that's a no-no, but we couldn't find Joey English. So it, it's just, it's so hard for me to understand where we are as a society on this whole issue. And I wish there was a conversation about a national strategy on how to um, deal with our landfills so that when people are in it, we have a mechanism to get them out of it. Um, so the Reconciliation Action Group, uh, sometimes we jokingly call it RAG. Uh, we have a waffle for folks who are interested in helping. Uh, those will go to legal costs for uh, former board members of, of Awaton trying to reclaim Awaton in every possible way that we can. So if you can help us out, that would be wonderful. And if you are a non-Indigenous person that does want to do more action, please consider joining the Reconciliation Action Group. Um, 
but as well, just send me your initiatives for folks who know and have followed this podcast. I have non-Indigenous folks on here who are serious about reconciliation, who understand oppression, but I very rarely have folks that are like, I'm such an ally and I do great work for Indigenous people and those Indigenous people need to do more for themselves. You're not going to find those types of people on here because they don't understand racism and they don't understand oppression. So anyway, I also have a book club for folks who um, read. I'd love to either have you join ours or, or hear your thoughts on some of the books we do. So for folks who are non-Indigenous, obviously Truth and Reconciliation Week is coming up and our day of the 30th really matters to us. It's a national holiday for federal employees. Anyway, it's Saturday and you know, maybe you're going to read a book once a year on Indigenous issues and some questions I'd like to ask yourself or like, you know, what are highlights of that book? And would you be willing to let us know those things? And would you write a review? Uh, for non-Indigenous, you have to understand Indigenous authors get racism and discrimination in their reviews because non-Indigenous people will not deal with their fragility, will not deal with their racism, and will not deal with the understanding of oppression dynamics. So if you think you are a good ally, write a good review for whatever book it is, uh, you know, your takeaways. Maybe you can inspire some other non-Indigenous people in your life to do some more work there. Anyway, so I have a few things I want to say about the next upcoming books. Oh, so we just did the Pathways to Justice uh, that will load on a week that I don't have any content to put up because I'm too busy. But October 9th, Cree lawyer Harold Johnson's book, Peace and Good Order, The Case for Indigenous Justice, is our next book. On November 13th will be a report to guide the implementation of a national action plan on violence against women and gender-based violence because non-Indigenous Canadians needed their own um, report because the national inquiries 231 calls to justice that would help both Indigenous and non-Indigenous wasn't good enough. So in order to complete Indigenous erasure, we have to do that. So that would be November 13th. Uh, December 11th, Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, edited by Joyce Green. Those are our books coming up. So I'm super excited for you to read those and let us know your thoughts on them. Uh, my book club is open to anyone. It's a Zoom. I truly believe that uh, ableism is a real issue in North America. So we do have folks who also understand that join our Zoom for our book club. And it is the second Monday of the month at 6.30 Mountain Time. So if you can schedule out some time, that would be great for you to come and join us. Anyway, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and cultural safety training first aid and all of them to create a safer space for indigenous people people of color those with disabilities and 2s lgbtq plus to speak uh cheryl ward chelsea branch and alicia fritkin of here to help.bc.ca has a, a wonderful piece on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Strongly recommend people check that out. Their work are those cultural action tools. So please support work like that as part of your reconciliation work, settler understanding and anti-racism training. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat it here. Um, if you identify as an equity seeking group, internalized oppression is a real issue. So for folks who don't understand that, that means you haven't done the work of understanding it. 
So if you go to racialequitytools.org, there's a wonderful, well, there's tons of resource files for everyone. Highly recommend them for everyone because if you're indigenous, you have anti-blackness to un unwork with. If you're black, you have anti-indigenous bias to work within. Um, ableism, disability, 2SLGBTQ. Um, <clears throat> when I hear police people, I did have a police officer say this to me, but when I hear people say, uh, well, you're just playing the oppression Olympics, you're showing your ignorance and you're saying it out loud. <laughs> so if you go to racialequitytools.org to the resources files, there's a great piece on internalized racism by Donna Bevins that I highly recommend, especially to anyone who is oppressed under this issue of capitalism um, and, and oppression dynamics of racism. Obviously, we are all being oppressed to some extent, but this can help give you the words to articulate these issues, but it can hopefully also stop you from attacking other folks that are already in equity seeking groups. Um, I, I strongly recommend that everybody do this work because we all have to find the words to talk about what it is we're seeing in order to create better policy. So for folks who are non-Indigenous, um, this is your call to action for 57 alone, let alone many of the calls to justice. This is why you need to do this work because you may not know that you are oppressing other people. And you know, we recently had a death and if there's one thing I'm learning from family members, it's the lack of understanding of this. And it's been really hard on my heart just hearing my own family members attack my Indigenous belief systems because they aren't educated on these issues. They aren't part of a book club. They aren't part of social policy. They aren't part of these issues. So they don't even know what they're saying and how hurtful and racist and oppressive it is when they're part of these groups. So I highly recommend everybody do this work because there's nothing more hurtful than racism within families. Anyway, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention for American Friends Service Committee. So if you go to afsc.org, there's a whole resource grouping of do's and don'ts for bystander information to help you as a bystander of what to do when you see somebody being racially motivatedly attacked in some capacity and how to help them. Uh, anyone who follows me on my social media, I uh, wish you would watch the anti-racism or organizational lead for the city of Calgary. They gave this, uh, the committee gave a presentation to the, um, to the city on the journey of becoming an anti-racism leader. Again, call to action 57. This is a part of it. It's on YouTube. It's open to the public. Uh, so if you don't consider yourself an anti-racism leader, I'm hoping the resources I've given you above can be a good step on moving forward on that. Here in Calgary, we have Black Lives Matter activists, Taylor McNally and Adora Nofor. Are, they are being legally targeted. Please donate to their funds. Indigenous people have been talking about our issues, traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, see yourself as, a, as an ally in reconciliation with action listen to politicians and their policies and their platforms, listen to their words in this national housing crisis that we're having. If they don't recognize uh, equity seeking in their budget with gender equity plus, um, if they're cutting violence prevention programs, services, uh, harm reduction, 
indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, a lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts um, equity seeking people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Provincially in Alberta, the Kenny government created 113 pathways to justice. So all the blue voters here should be holding their blue MLAs to account on it. How many of our elected officials even know what the 113 pathways to justice are? I'm not hearing that. And nationally, we're having a conversation about housing strategies. And many of you know, I was encouraging folks to write about this at uh, womenshomelessness.ca at Christmas time. None of that is in incorporated in any of the housing strategies that I'm hearing about to protect the lives of Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit and gender diverse people experiencing homelessness. It's not in the reports, folks. It's just not there. So anyway, our people are experiencing extreme racism in all of the different institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Demand change from election platforms and politicians if they don't understand colonialism, treaty, racism, privilege, sexism, they have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, nonprofits, sports clubs, Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies, because there's tons of them out there. Uh, you can also go to aboriginalalert.ca and sign up to find out about uh, missing ind Indigenous people in your area. They're really great on social media and through email. Um, I know my friend Stephanie Harp has been working with the Missing Children Society of Canada to try to increase the Indigenous people that are missing. Um, opioid uh, drug crisis, crisis is happening and, and the genocide is over-representing my people in the uh, Indigenous community. So because there's no culturally supportive um, resources for them. That's just the reality. And we know in, in the Indigenous world that culture is prevention. So if you are using or know someone who's using substances, please do not use alone. If you're using alone, you can contact the National Overdose Response Service at 888-688-NORS. There's also about three different apps that I know of, the Brave, the Doors, and the Lifeguard apps. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, you can call the First Nation Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you go to their website, hopeforwellness.ca, they have a little um, IA text box that you can chat with as well. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. It is also open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's a 60 Scoop Society, Society of Alberta. So if you go to ssisa.ca, uh, the Indian Residential School Survivors and Family Hotline is 866-925-4419. The Native Youth Crisis Hotline is 877 209 
1266. For non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area, usually a functioning 211. You can also call 833-456-4566 or text at 45645, or you can go to crisisservicescanada.ca for more resources. Uh, for those who identify as 2SLGBTQ2+, uh, you can go to lifevoice.ca for tons of crisis supports. Uh, the Trans Lifeline is 877-330-6866. The Trevor Project for LGBTQ youth is 866-844-7386. And of course, the Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868. They're so old, I used it when I was a kid. <laughs> Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. It's why I started the podcast, to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear a Dene woman's opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, even if they know nothing about the issues of Indigenous people, colonialism, constant surveillance of our people, protests, vigils, and our rights. I and many others share info on microaggressions, so it's unacceptable anymore. Learn about being trauma-informed. Folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, folks that live off the status quo, and folks that are so in their trauma, they stop people from doing the work and deplete all the resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me. Uh, lots of folks, Indigenous people, folks with disabilities, uh, QT, BIPOC, and others. I do want to say thank you to my ancestors, to my granny and my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what proud culture is through her Austrian family, to my husband, big buffalo rock man. I want to thank you for producing and editing this show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from you daily, and we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. And I hope that my, my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these issues the way that they can understand. Uh, my patron account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. This is an independent podcast. There is nobody funding this podcast. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I just always want to thank you, my listeners. I'm always shocked when some of you um, listen to me and tell me, especially in person, that uh, you you listen. It's It's incredible to me and I'm grateful. And I'd love to share your stories if you are an Indigenous person that wants to share your business, wants to share the work you do, your um, reclaiming journey, reconciliation for non-settlers or for settlers. I'd, I'd love to hear from you because that's what I want to amplify is that it can be done. I want to inspire other people to do more on these issues. So if you can be a part of my podcast, I would love that. 
but I definitely want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin Riss would respond, or he had D in my dish. Thank you folks for listening. <laughs>